Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I know there's a lot going on around President Cyril Ramaphosa right now and we'll get to him, but the big story of all our lives, like it or not, is going to be climate change and our place in it as South Africans and individuals. Like most of the world, we've committed ourselves to producing net zero carbon in our energy mix by 2050, a date now quite rapidly approaching. The logical thing to do, you think, is to begin pouring as much money as we have as much as we can beg and borrow into renewable energy. That's pretty much solar, wind, batteries, some pump water storage. But the energy field is littered with experts, just like COVID was. And there's a really serious effort being made in South Africa to stop using coal, but instead of jumping straight into renewables, to create a stepping stone, a transition fuel, on the way to 2050. That fuel is natural gas. Politicians like it, and oh dear, so I'm afraid does business. Arguing against it is like standing in the deep hole and screaming in the hope someone hears you. Fortunately, somebody has done something about it. My guest today is Susan Connery, a reporter for the prestigious uh, investigative journalistic group Amabungani. She wrote an absolutely brilliant and well-researched piece the other day on just how much gas we might actually need for our transition to a greener future. Welcome, Susan. Congratulations on a very... Really, really fine piece of reporting. The integrated resource plan that Guedemantasha published in 2019 sort of downplayed gas in a way, but it seems to be making a comeback. What was it that got you interested in the gas alternative in the first place? What did you do, what did you see that warranted the effort you eventually put into it? Hi, Peter. Uh, thanks so much. And um, yeah, so I guess we started looking at gas because of car powership. I mean, a couple of us at Amabungani had come across car powership in about 2015 when it was introduced as this kind of, you know, harebrained scheme to assist with load shedding at ESCOM. So when car powership reemerged five years later, we sort of thought it was worth a kind of closer look. Um, But when car powership was denied environmental authorization, basically its permit to operate, you know, my thought was, well, that's it. I mean, that's dead in the water. Um, and I was writing a piece at the time, and the original headline that we'd put on the piece was how car power ship was sunk by substandard environmental studies. And Sam, um, Amabi's editor, had actually said, well, you know, let's maybe change sunk to how it was torpedoed, because we don't know that the project is, you know, absolutely dead in the water. And it turned out that he was absolutely right. I mean, a year later, you know, car power ships, RMI4P projects are these sort of zombies that refuse to die. (laughs) Um, But really, I mean, the reason we started looking at gas was because of the developments that we saw after car power ship. Um, So after they were denied, you know, their environmental authorization, what you start seeing is you see Shell coming along wanting to do this seismic survey off the wild coast. You had a French company, CGG, wanting to do a similar um, near identical survey off, I think it was off St. Francis, if I remember. Um, you'll remember you had, you know, yeah. Guede Mantashe kind of coming up these outrageous sort of statements saying that, you know, people who were opposing the seismic surveys on environmental grounds, it was kind of akin to, you know, apartheid and colonialism of a special type. Um, we also then saw, yeah. you know, the gas plan, which has been sitting on the shelf, you know, um, for for years, the gas master plan. Um, it just kind of, you know, ignored when nuclear was the big thing. Um, we saw that sort of quietly being dusted off in December. 
um, and a, a sort of base case released for comment, um, you know, and kind of painting this quite worrying picture of the sort of massive gas-fired future that the DMRE had in mind. Um, and then there were other, you know, there were these small moves that were sort of happening. You saw the, the Central Energy Fund uh, kind of calling for bids for a, a gas aggregator yeah. in Kucha, Um, and that sort of piqued the interest of the of the Russians who've been trying to sell South Africa gas projects for years. Um, right. You had Fakile and Balula kind of weirdly announcing that he had given permission for a $1.5 billion onshore regasification plant in Kucha. Um and then you, what really sort of surprised us was you had uh, organized business um, in the form of the National Business Initiative, the NBI, kind of putting out this role of gas report, which kind of on the surface was really quite forcefully making the case for gas. Um, and then, of course, nine days later, you know, Russia invades Ukraine and gas prices kind of go through the roof. So all of these sort of signs started to to point towards us being on the kind of verge of a major kind of decades-long investment into gas that would potentially cost sort of trillions of rands. And, you know, no one seemed to be sort of asking whether we actually need gas. Um, and if we do need gas, how much do we actually need? And so it was quite a simple sort of question that we set out to answer. Um, how much gas do we actually need um, so that, you know, we're not kind of misled, particularly with, you know, being in the midst of load shedding and things like that, uh, into down yeah. the gas path um, when it's actually not necessary. Let us. me let me just stop you there because I I, um, I picked up on the on the NBR report. Um, when, when did it come out? I think it was February, March. And it was a, it was a major piece of work, wasn't mm. it? It was done. Um, uh, I know that they, you know, tried their best to be responsible and I, I um, and and thoughtful. And I, as I remember it, um, the solution that they came up with was a new gas infrastructure. They wanted to stress that it wouldn't be a wouldn't become a stranded asset because it would somehow be able to be converted to uh, renewable energy. Perhaps they transport hydrogen in it, but the but they wanted it was big. You know, there was there were gas facilities in i think three or four ports um uh which would have entailed pipelines which would have entailed terminals this is a lot of money and obviously when south africa um, does things like this whether we're ordering arms in the 90s or locomotives in the teens um uh, money can go astray can it not i mean it, it can it can lead to enormous corruption let alone you know whether it actually gets done properly or whether it's necessary. Yeah, that's. So, I mean, that's so true. That you know the examples that you cite, the the arms deal, the ten sixty four locomotive deal. Um, it really kind of underscores, you know, the the problem that we have with these kind of massive infrastructure projects that can be hugely over budget and massively delayed. And when one's talking about gas, I think in particular, there's there's a real, you know, it's widely acknowledged that the, the door is closing on gas if it hasn't closed already, at least for South Africa. And, yeah. you know, kind of one of the points that I try to kind of get across in the piece is, do we really want to go down this path of kind of making these huge investments into a technology that's already in its sort of twilight years? 
that's already looking, that's already saying, you know, if we do this, we've got to make sure that we can repurpose it for something different because this is not going to last very long. Let's just take another step back before you get to how much we actually uh, need. Who wants this gas the most? Um, Greta, Greta Mantasha is on record saying gas is going to be the, the game changer. What he means, one has no idea. Nonetheless, that's what he wants. And he's, and he's very, you know, as you say, very angry with people for opposing the seismic uh, searches offshore. I think we do have some gas fines. They're uh, quite a long way offshore and in very rough seas. It would cost an enormous amount of money uh, to bring the gas onshore for what you uh, report and get to is not a lot of, is not a, not a lot of gas. But are we able to do without any gas, Susan? Or do we need, and I'm talking about energy, I'm not talking about um, synthetics, uh, uh, the kind of stuff that Sasol might require to make some of its products. Do we need gas for any form of electricity, in your opinion? I mean, having had a look at this. So I think for me, where the debate should be at the moment is this question of, do we need no gas or do we need a very small amount of gas? Um, you know, that's not the debate that that Guede Mantashe and the DMRE is having. The kind of messages that we're getting from the um, from the DMRE and from government is uh, is talking about big gas. Yeah. You know, talking about burning gas for kind of um, in place of burning coal, which is just, you know, the the, the the figures just make no sense whatsoever. Yeah. You know, gas is a it's a premium product. You use it in the same way that you use diesel. And so really the debate we should be having is, you know, do we go with a small amount of gas only to sort of support a renewables dominant system to the extent that it needs support? Um, or do we look at alternatives that would bypass gas entirely? And there's a couple of, you know, the 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 sort of hope is that green hydrogen will um will be viable. Um, and that that will kind of, um, you know, be viable by sort of 2030 or around there. Um, but there are sort of other alternatives. I mean, there's sort of suggestions that we could continue to burn diesel, um, you know, burn, burn dirty for a short amount of time rather than, uh, rather than kind of yeah. making a big capital investment into, into gas. I, I think that's the debate that we need to be having. Um, you know, this idea that somehow we need massive amounts of offshore gas that's going to take 10 years to come online. I mean, that's just the the research doesn't bear that out. It is amazing how crazy we uh, we have the potential to be um, uh, when you look at this. One of the interesting things that's happened to gas in the last couple of months is that particularly since the invasion of Ukraine, is that the Europeans have decided that it is suddenly to be declared or have declared it a clean energy source, um, uh, which changes which changes what you kind of mean by green energy in a way. Um, they've done it because they possibly feel that they can't meet the 2050 targets now with you know the Russian gas not being available to them. Um, uh, but it might also change the conversation in South Africa, where South Africans start saying, or the authorities or the people who want gas start saying, "Well, it's a green energy." Look, the European Union has just uh, just um, declared it to be so, and it kind of takes you, it takes the foot off the renewables accelerator in a way. And I wonder whether you came across that when you were talking to people. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a very controversial decision that um, that the EU decided. 
decided to to kind of classify gas as a as a green greener fuel. Um, I mean, it's it's by no means my area of expertise, but you know, I think what one does need to look at is kind of what is gas replacing. Um, you know, in uh, in countries in Europe, in particular, gas is uh, is replacing coal in many instances. And there, there is, it is cleaner than coal, but coal is an incredibly dirty fuel. So, um, so that's a pretty low bar to be cleaner than coal. Uh, you know, in South Africa, what we'd be talking about if we use large amounts of gas is that we, it's not to replace coal. We've already said, you know, we have a schedule. We're going to shut down our, our coal power stations by, um, by 2050. Although realistically, it's probably a lot earlier. Um, you know, in, in South Africa's case, if we are introducing gas, what is it displacing? What it's displacing is most likely going to be renewables. And then the argument that gas is somehow clean, cleaner just kind of, you know, goes goes completely out the window. Did you get a feel for for what people's expectations for green hydrogen were? I mean, how much how much of this can we produce? You estimate, um, and I'm going to probably get my numbers wrong here now, but you estimated that we needed a lot less gas than um, uh, the IRP or anybody else um, thought possible. You said uh, that you would need, um, or that we would need, um, 17 petajoules of gas a year until 2035. Until, not from, until 2035. We were already getting 180 petajoules a year from Mozambique. What do we use that for? So the vast majority of that goes to Sassel to make sin fuels, you know, and in Sassel's case, they're predominantly relying on coal. And so there is a kind of decarbonization benefit in them switching from making sin fuels um, from coal to making sin fuels from gas. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, th those are not really my figures. Those are figures that have come out of the NBI report. You know, NBI, yes. um, no. it's it's not a mandated organization, so it, it's not necessarily the case that um, its report represents the, the the kind of stance of its members. But it is worth remembering that, you know, NBI is kind of a, it supposedly is is representing the views of major corporations across South Africa. I mean, if you look at their membership no, it's list, a big, it's a big, it's a big, it's, huge, it's a big you know, voice, including yeah. you know yeah. people like uh, Shell and Sassel and and people like that. Mm. So what they talk about is, um, you know, in their kind of low emissions pathway, they they develop two pathways essentially. There's one pathway which yes. is let's go for renewables. We'll be, you know, we'll be net zero by 2050 and we'll have all the power that we need. The other pathway is let's go for renewables, but let's take a detour into gas. We'll still be net zero by 2050, um, but we'll do it in a way that is that is a lot more polluting and potentially also quite, um, you know, potentially more expensive um, depending on, on what gas prices do. But if we look at their low emissions pathway and we say that is essentially a proxy for how much gas how, how little gas can we get away with what they say yes. is sort of on average 17 petajoules per annum by 2035 and as you pointed out we're already importing i think it's either 170 or 180 petajoules per annum from from mozambique now now that is that supply is starting to dwindle because of you know a variety of reasons yeah. but but yeah. When, what we're talking about is very 
marginally increasing um, the amount of gas we already bring into the country, which is, you know, it's it's not a huge amount of gas at all. It's it certainly isn't something that justifies massive infrastructure projects and doesn't certainly doesn't justify kind of plowing up the the ocean floor. They don't they don't go for their low um, uh, usage option, do they? They go for a, a midway one where where there are a couple of um, this is, I'm talking about the NBR, where there are a couple of terminals built in South African ports with pipelines and associated infrastructure. As that's how I understood the report um, uh, when I read it. They 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 seem to choose um, uh, quite a complex and quite an expensive uh, alternative. Um, yeah. Did I get that wrong? No, no. I mean, I think so. You know, the NBR report looked at gas across a number of sectors. And as you've said, you know, there's a difference between gas that the electricity sector needs and gas that, for instance, yes. the Sinfield sector needs. So, you know, Sassel is going to have to make a decision about where it's going to get its gas from. Um, yeah. And under those types of scenarios, one could look at like, well, how do you bring in gas? And, you know, um, the, the sort of proposal is that you have these kind of different gas terminals um, that, you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting that the NBI report does kind of mention is, you know, Sassel had initially planned to build this massive pipeline or would be part of building this massive pipeline that would bring gas down from northern Mozambique. Sassel has now said yes. they're not going that route. And, and they very specifically have said that they, you know, they, their concern is that they will end up with a stranded asset that they yeah. will, you know, before the asset is paid off, there will just no longer be that demand for gas. Um, and so they've actually, you know, abandoned that idea. What you see in the NBI report is them kind of taking a similar thing to say, look, this idea of building massive infrastructure, we need to be careful of that. Rather go for, um, if you are going to bring in gas, rather go for um, sort of temporary structures. So, for instance, you know, it was similar to what Car Powership had proposed in the sense that, you have a floating storage regasification unit which sits in your harbor, mm. takes on liquefied mm. natural gas, um, and uh, and regasifies it and turns it into gas that you can use. The problem with the car power ship um, solution, however, wasn't the FSRU, your which is in charge of bringing in gas and turning it into gas. Um, yeah. The problem was is that they had these sort of floating engines that would burn the gas on yeah. ships. That's really yeah. where it becomes environmentally problematic. Yeah, you you put the price of. Um, of this gas alternative, of this gas transition, at up to a trillion rand. And I know I've also used up to a trillion rand in columns that I've written, but um, uh, you, you've probably done a lot more calculating than I would have had. Um, uh, just tell us, talk a little bit about that trillion rand figure. It's a lot of money. Um, and I don't want to mislead people into thinking that that is what it would cost us to get, what is it, 17 petajoules a year. Because you're talking about a much bigger project there. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, it's difficult to know exactly how much gas the South African government wants to bring in. Um, you know, Greta Mantashe has said that he wants more gas, but he hasn't said exactly how much. So, you know, what we've looked at was the NDI's sort of what we've called the pro-gas pathway. Now, it's still far more um, progressive 
than the the gas pathway that Mantashe likely wants. Mm. Um, so this is this is a kind of gas light, as they like to call it. But we are still talking about a vast amount of gas, even though it is supposedly gas light. Um, you know, if one looks at a scenario where we don't replace gas with green hydrogen, we continue burning gas, and we find ways to make that gas cleaner, um, we'd essentially be talking about um, by NBI's calculations, 4,500 petajoules by collectively by 2050. Now, it depends yeah. how you price that gas. Um, the NBI reports had used price of one rand forty per gigajoule. Um, that's probably mm-hmm. too conservative post post Ukraine. You know, there is kind of a you know there's a throttling of what's available in the market. Um, Mm. You know, the price has shot up, they've come back down again, but, you know, the sort of potential volatility of gas is now a major concern. You know, one could say, oh, we could maybe get cheap gas from Russia. Well, I'm not sure anyone in their right mind would be signing up to take gas from Russia at the moment, considering, you know, their willingness to just sort of shut off um, their clients. So the, the kind of figure, if we use a... If we use 140 rand a gigajoule, um, we'd be looking at around 628 billion rand. That's just on the gas that we would burn. That's not on infrastructure, anything to do with that. It's just purely on gas that's being burned um, by 2050. If we look at a more realistic price, perhaps 300 rand per gigajoule, we're looking at around 1.3 trillion rand. Now, I don't know that that 300 grand a gigajoule would hold because, you know, essentially when gas goes over a certain price, your demand for gas starts to drop. So if we use the more um, conservative figure of 628 billion rand um, just on gas, once you then add in the infrastructure costs, the capex, fixed opex, you know, variable opex, you start to get to just over a trillion rand um, by, by 2050. Yeah. So one of the things that you talk about is is you you, you ask for the you know you ask the question why not car power ship you know if 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 all we're looking for um, is a small amount of gas to make the transition uh, to support renewable dominant system why not car power ship um, uh, and if not car power ship what are you going to use eventually for what they call peaking power so when you need you know, let's say you're in you're in renewables territory now, and you suddenly, you know, the the weather turns foul, and there's no sun, and the wind drops. Or what do we do, you know, for, to balance the system? What 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 do we've got in reserve once we're on renewables only? Sure. Um. So I mean, look, the 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 sort of question around why not car power ship? I mean, it was an interesting one because it wasn't something I really grasped grasped when we initially started looking at car power ship but you know the problem with car power ship is not necessarily the technology the problem is the proposed contract um, under the risk mitigation program um so as you say it's a 20-year contract um the problem the real problem with it is that it has this take or pay clause so it essentially commits escom to buying on average 12 hours of power a day now, that's far more power. I mean, if you think about our diesel peaking plants, if we were burning those for 12 hours a day, it would just be insane. Mm. We would, you know, yeah. our, our diesel bill would go through the roof. So we have to think about like, why would we want to b- burn gas at the same kind at that kind of level? So, you know, essentially the car powership pro- project, the problem with that is that you have a very small number of um, 
uh, I, I always forget if it's gas turbines yeah, yeah, yeah. or reciprocation engines, but you have a very small number of turbines um, and you're pumping large amounts of gas through those mm-hmm. turbines. So it's at a very sort of high capacity factor. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what we need. When we move to a variable um, energy system dominated by renewable energy and, you know, all the studies are saying it's just a no-brainer, that's where we need to go. What you need is peaking power and you need balancing power. So you need power for uh, to fill in the gaps, essentially. Now, that can kind of be provided in various ways. Batteries will be one way of providing that power. Um, but at the moment, kind of batteries, you know, have a sort of limited time span um, where they run down and they need to be recharged. If you have a period of kind of several days where you have, uh, you know, where the sun isn't shining, where the wind isn't blowing. Supposedly there's a kind of 10 days or two weeks in Ma- in May every year when, when this happens. Yeah. What you really need is balancing power to step up. And so what you need at that point is a large number of turbines, but you need them standing idle for most of the year. Um, and that sounds very inefficient, but that's, you know, that, that, that is the sort of, you know, it's the backup plan that is used sparingly that's really only used when we need it Um, and that's essentially you know where the car power ship contracts are so problematic is that it gives us completely the wrong type of power um too too few turbines and too much power being pushed through it at too high a rate too often as you you know as i read about climate change in this debate this energy debate how we match it and how we get there i'm conscious of how trapped we are as sort of grown-ups, I suppose, in that we can't imagine certain things being possible. We can't imagine making energy without somehow, you know, making fire. We're just not ready to accept the fact, as the Australians seem to have already accepted, that a battery can provide you with all of those things, as long as it's big enough, and as long as you've got enough of them. We are stuck in the sort of mode where whatever we do that might be futuristic with solar and wind, somehow, You've got to have a little nuclear power plant waiting in the wings, or you've got to have a, you know, a proper power station, a gas, or fire, or coal, or whatever it might be. Did you ever get the impression when you were talking to people about this that, that, um, you know, did you find people who were just very comfortable with batteries in the future, or, or does everybody want a little sort of standby? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um... <laughs> There's a there's a um, there's a lovely German expression I, I can't remember what it is or can but um, which kind of describes that sort of fear the fear that people have of of renewables not being available um, to provide enough power. Yeah. Um, I look I think there's a lot of things that that sort of seem very futuristic. I mean you know cell phones the internet all of that that's kind of been within our lifetime. We've gone from none of it to it just being absolutely ubiquitous. Um, but I mean, I think also perhaps what what w- does help in South Africa is that you know we're looking at the ESCOM coal fleet, and this idea that this is going to be this reliable baseload power that will just always be there to provide power, it's just clear that that's not true anymore. You know, um, the, the 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 reliable ESCOM coal fleet is um, no matter how much maintenance you do, we're never going to get that back. Um, so, you know, often I kind of find like people have this idea that, you know, well, you know, why don't we just carry on burning coal? Well, because our coal fired power plants are going to fall over. It, you know, they are currently 
kind of retiring themselves ahead of schedule, whether we like it or not. So I think in, in South Africa's case, you know, to a degree, we're helped, we're pushed along by the fact that we have this very, it's not simply the climate crisis that's hanging over us. We are dealing with a very real crisis and the two are sort of perfectly intertwined. Um, so hopefully that's something that kind of moves people, moves people along. And lastly, I mean, I just wonder to what extent, um, we we appreciate how one the Ukraine is going to affect people's attitudes to energy. If you look at Europe, look at what the Germans have promised to do, and I understand that they are all interconnected. Germany is next to France, which is you know nuclear powered. You can get power from them quickly when you need you know when your when your wind or solar doesn't uh, doesn't function for you. But but. You know, Germany's the German economy, according to the German deputy prime minister, who's the head of the Green Party uh, in that country and a very powerful man. Um, it will be it will be one hundred percent carbon free by twenty thirty five, and it just strikes me how you know how how behind we are with our debate. We have an opportunity, surely. I don't want to put this onto your shoulders, but I mean, it'd be interested to hear your view. We've got an opportunity to do exactly the same. We could be carbon um, zero by twenty thirty-five if we if we try hard enough. We, you know, we're adding two, three thousand megawatts a year, perhaps if we, you know, if they can get financing of um, of uh, solar and wind power here. But we need to be doing fifteen, twenty thousand megawatts a year. Just to get there and just to basically, basically, you know, we could become the world's first carbon free exporter of anything from, you know, oranges to iron ore. Uh, and it just strikes me that, you know, both the NBI and Sassel or the government, they're all stuck in these kind of old fudgy positions and nobody has any real sense of urgency. Greta has now said he's going to relook at the, um, uh, at the um, at the integrated resource plan, uh, people are going to. It just I just wonder whether there's enough sense of. And you tell me whether you found this. But you know, are people still enjoying the argument rather than enjoying actually getting on with it? You know, the thing that was so eye-opening for me um, was to look at uh, a kind of world map of solar resources. Mm. to look at how solar resources Mm. compare in different countries. And you look at Germany, which, as you say, has this incredibly ambitious target. You know, Germany's been trotting off. They're They're going to buy, you know, they're going to carry on with coal for a little while. They've said they're going to take some coal from us, but they also want kind of green energy projects um, to be developed with South Africa. They've been going to Namibia, um, from what I understand, and and they've signed agreements to get kind of green hydrogen produced from Namibia. But if you look at, you know, Germany is an, they're they're a massive industrialized economy. They're, you know, their, their economy and their factories are so reliant on power. And yet they're going, they are making a commitment to, to, um, to, build a massive renewable dominant system. Look at the map, though, of the kind of solar resources that Germany has and compare it to the map of South Africa. Germany would, I mean, they would, their their best solar resources in Germany are comparable to our worst solar resources in South Africa. You could put up solar panels in Durban with, you know, the level of cloud cover they have and you would have better 
results than putting it up yeah. in Germany. You know, South Africa, I think we often get caught up in this idea that our resources are the things that you mine yeah. out of the ground, that it's it's the oil, it's the gas, it's the it's the minerals that come out of the ground. We have the most incredible resources um, that are kind of all around us in terms of in terms of solar and in terms of wind. Um, and for a country with such an endowment of riches um, in terms of solar and wind to not be utilizing that, um, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I think the, the UN Secretary General said the other day, it's kind of um, moral and economic madness. Um, and I think it would be moral and economic madness for us not to, um, not to realize what we're sitting on. Susan Comrie, we're going to end it there. I can't thank you enough for making time to talk to me. And I hope we see more of your reporting on energy and climate uh, as the story moves along. It's such a big, such a big thing. And thank you for listening in. I'll be back next week with another interesting guest. Until then, please take care. Bye-bye.